All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 21, and we're continuing our sermon series on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, and if you are new with us this morning, I uh, just want to catch you up to speed on what, what this is about. We as a church um, want to grow in our understanding of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, and so this is, this is part of that. This is kind of the beginnings of that. Not to say that the Holy Spirit hasn't been dealt with before, but we want to uniquely focus on his person and work because it is often uh, um, something that we are very confused about and that we actually have been shaped more by what someone else thinks, what a denomination has put forward, or our own personal experience without that being shaped by Scripture. And so we want to make sure that we are first and foremost a, a Bible-formed, Bible-shaped people. And John is the gospel in which Christ most talks about the Holy Spirit. We have the longest passages about the Holy Spirit in this gospel uh, above all the others. And so that's really chapters 14 through 16. But the Spirit gets introduced sooner, which helps us lay the groundwork for understanding what it is that Christ is going to say. So the thing that we want to be most concerned with is, is the primary work of the person work of the Holy Spirit. Now... The good news about that is, is that to learn about the Spirit is to learn about Christ, because that is the reason that he comes. He comes to evidence more and more of Christ, which if you're going to learn about Christ, then, well, you've got to learn about God, because Christ evidences the glory of God. So really, this is Trinitarian, but with a, a little more focus on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so this is something that we want to prayerfully grow in and be able to be a Spirit-filled church, not a church who's afraid of the work of the Holy Spirit, but also not confused by what is not the work of the Holy Spirit. So as we step into this passage this morning, um, this is one that we have some familiarity with. Uh, John 3, mostly 16 through 21, more so than 1 through 15. We are fairly familiar with the Nicodemus story, but it's important to know how those two parts actually fit together. And just to give you a, a heads up on, on the literary structure of this chapter, uh, verses 1 through 15 are, it's a story. It's a story of Nicodemus and Jesus. And then 16 through 21 is John the Apostle's explanation of that story. And so that's going to be important for our understanding of what's being communicated. Uh, the thing that I want you to take away, the key truth from this sermon, is that we are born again of the Holy Spirit in Christ to participate in the kingdom of God by sharing his redemptive love for the world. That's really important. That primarily, above all things, that the work of the Holy Spirit is to transform us so that we could participate in the kingdom of God. Um, and and if, if we lose that, if, if that's not part of our understanding of the Holy Spirit, then we're, we, we, get, we get off base pretty quickly. And so the first question that I have for us by way of introduction is, what part did you play in your being born again in Christ? That's a good answer. Nothing. Now you may say, well, you may... the. the I believed. Isn't that an act? Well, actually what you did was surrender. That's, the, that's different. And notice, did you go looking for a Savior, thinking that Christ was who you were looking for, or was it that the Holy Spirit had to regenerate you so you could see what's been there the whole time? See, it's important that we recognize that our part in being born again, the regenerative work uh, of God in, in the lives of his children, is, is surrender. And, and that is much, that is passive. You're giving up. And in faith, trusting that what he said is true, that your life is going to be transformed. 
Just as the psalmist says, God knows everything there is to know about us, and yet he still loves us, which part of that love, and this is critical, while he receives us as we are, this is, you got to get this point, he receives us as we are, but he does not leave us as we were. Do you understand? That's critical, because sometimes we can get into some cheap grace real quick when we just stay on, he receives us as we are, full stop. It's not true. In fact, that's not very loving. Let me illustrate. How many of you are parents? Okay. What if you never did anything to equip your children after their birth? Like, like some of you, like Juliana would be wearing a diaper, incommunicative, completely dependent on all the worst parts. Is that loving? Like, no, we call that child abuse, actually, um, to not raise our children to, to know things in, in the same way. God doesn't leave us as he finds us when he makes us his children. He helps us to grow up into the fullness of what he has for us. His redemption is an invitation into the work that he's doing in this world. And that's what we're going to see Christ communicating to Nicodemus. Is that the desire of our heart ought to be to work alongside of and with God using the means of grace. To participate in the fullness of the kingdom of God. So Leon Morris, uh, who is a New Testament scholar, has this to say to give us just an entry point into the chapter. He says, Nicodemus and all his tribe of lawdoers are left with not the slightest doubt, but that what is asked of a man is not more law, but the power of God within him to remake him completely. In its own way, this chapter does away with works of the law every bit as thoroughly as anything in Paul. So as we step into this, what you want to be paying attention to is what's being communicated fully to Nicodemus. So a big part of that is going to be knowing who he is. So if you would, turn to the text, and let's read that to be born of the Spirit to eternal life is to participate in the kingdom of God. Give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, 
As we walk through this story, there's several details that are important to help us to understand what's actually being communicated. And without these details, it could make it difficult to understand the fullness of what Jesus is trying to communicate, not just to Nicodemus, but to us, his people. So first off, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and you need to know that the Pharisees um, were, were strong on law, that they oftentimes would drift into thinking that righteousness saves us. Actually, it does, by the way. Did you know that? Righteousness does, in fact, save you. It's Christ's righteousness perfectly kept, which means the law isn't all bad. That's a misnomer. But what they thought is they could do it. Now, think about that harrowing passage where um, I, I believe it's Christ who says it. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. How many of you ever read that and thought, I'm just not really going to spend a lot of time with that. That just sounds terrible. But yet Christ is saying, I am the way that your righteousness will exceed that of the Pharisees. And what he's saying is, if they can't keep it, you can't keep it. And only can it be kept in me. So Nicodemus is coming to him with a, a, an understanding of the law that is, you can amend. A man, a woman can be saved by their good deeds. That, that as long as you're a good person, according to this list of morality, in general, you can make it. Right? That's kind of the baseline, that, that he, the operating principle for him. And you need to understand that he's looking for a militant Messiah. A Messiah that will come and lay the axe to the root of the tree of his enemies. And so what he is enamored by is power, which is one of the reasons why he addresses Jesus the way that he does. Now, what you need to know is that Jesus in chapter 2, if, if, if it's only the events in John that Nicodemus is referring to, which it probably isn't, but at least those two events were powerful. So you have the wedding at Cana in which Jesus turns water into wine. And he does so at the end of the party, and he doesn't really take a whole lot of credit for it. He, he lets the host take credit because that's just not what people do. They don't leave the best wine for last. But it wasn't just so that the party would get crunk and full at the end and everybody would be like, oh, man, he's, this dude's lit. He's right, right? No, it is an eschatological sign. Now, what does that word mean? What does eschatological mean? Well, it points forward to the second coming of Christ or when he will make all things new. The best wine is saved for the last. Now, you remember at the Last Supper when he said, I won't drink again of this cup until I am with you. The best wine is saved for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that event is pointing even beyond the cross and the resurrection all the way to the final return of Christ. And then right after that, you have uh, one of the stories in which Jesus, and I just this is just amazing to me, he makes his own bullwhip. Anybody ever try to make a bullwhip? It's in, at work. It's tougher than it looks, by the way. So Jesus makes a bull, fashions a bull whip, and goes in and chases out the money changers and turns over tables in the temple. And he basically says, in, in this account, he says, it is because of my zeal for the glory of God that I'm doing this. Now, what is that? That was an eschatological picture that he was, he, and he even tells him, tear this temple down in three days it'll rise again. And so Nicodemus is saying, you look powerful. You can turn water into wine. You can chase folks out of the temple and remain alive. You seem to have a pretty good sword in your fist. 
And notice the way he speaks to him doesn't exactly exalt him as God. He says, rabbi and teacher. So he's just saying, you're kind of like the rest of us, but maybe a little more powerful. Tell me, where does your power come from? How, in essence, can we use this power? Is the heart that Nicodemus has as he comes by night. Now, the coming by night, many have made a good bit of hay out of, and it could be that he didn't want to be seen with Jesus because you don't get to always explain. And so, but he was interested. But do note that Nicodemus is not necessarily coming because he thinks Jesus is the Savior. He's coming because he thinks he's the militant, potentially the militant Messiah that can, um, that can further their agenda. Notice how things get turned. And so here, Nicodemus is saying, where's this come from? Where are you getting this power from? Who, essentially, he's saying the same thing that was said to John. Who are you? And Jesus answered him. He says, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so what he's saying to him is your greatest desire, Nicodemus, ought to be to see the kingdom of God. That would be a fantastic desire. But you're not getting there through your power. You must be radically transformed. You must be regenerated all the way down. In fact, so much so that it essentially is a new birth. You are a new creation. That's what it's going to take, actually, for you to get what it is you think you want. And notice, Nicodemus, like most of our children, was a strict literalist. Right? He heard it black and white. Hold on a second. So you're telling me, that what I got to do as an old man, which means Nicodemus wasn't some young whippersnapper. He had a little, little bit of experience in him. He said, you're telling me as an old man that what I'm going to have to do is get back in the womb and come back out. That's what you're telling me. And notice Jesus says, like oftentimes we as parents, right, I'm going to change a couple of the words for you. But it really is the same sentence. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you... <clears throat> And notice, this actually is gracious. He's not irritated. He adds in some, some elements that, that he's beginning to set Nicodemus up. Because notice later on he's going to say, and you're a teacher of Israel and you don't get this. He uses the Old Testament. This is where if you don't recognize the references from the Old Testament that Jesus uses and why, you miss what he's actually saying to Nicodemus. So he says to him, unless you're born of water and spirit... You cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he, all he added was water, and he added king, uh, that you can't enter, not just see it, but enter into it. Now, let me just say that people way, way, way smarter than me that have spilled a lot of ink and wrestled with this uh, ha have come to a bunch of different conclusions. In fact, it was a very harrowing thing for me as I began to study for this passage. The first person I read was R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul said these words, and I almost gave up and decided to preach something else. He said, John 3 is probably the most complicated chapter in all of the Bible. I have studied it for 40 years, and I am still not yet sure what it means. <laughs> well, I'm arrogant enough that I'm up here this morning, and I'm preaching John 3. Now, I Having, having, having studied it, and I really, J.C. Ryle was incredibly helpful in this. Uh, I didn't come up with this on my own, but, and, and it makes a, a lot of sense to me. The fact that baptism doesn't get mentioned to Nicodemus later on, I don't think that's what he's talking about. 
He's not talking about you must be baptized with water first and then you get the spirit baptism or you can't be born again. Now, for those who do take that position, because of John the Baptist having come, it, would, it would, doesn't not make sense that he could have been referring to water baptism. But given how he's trying to get Nicodemus to understand what he's saying, the, the referent that he's pointing to is Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. It makes a lot more sense that that would be the context. He's essentially saying, you must be purified. That's what Nicodemus would understand. The purpose of water is to purify. In Ezekiel 36, that's the passage where it says, I am going to sprinkle you. Why we sprinkle with baptism. Just quick, quick note there since you'll see that later. I'm going to sprinkle you with water and I'm going to change your heart from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It's got to be total transformation. And water, in this sense, is an image of the Spirit. And so he's saying, look, it's water and spirit, okay? It's, it, I'm, I'm saying the same thing I just said to you, but, but I'll give you another wrinkle so that you understand something from what you should be teaching people, which is that the purpose of the kingdom of God is the transformation of the hearts of the people into a new creation, sons and daughters, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And to say that it's not just see the kingdom of God, because from the Hebrew perspective, um, the senses were much more interactive. They were not, we, we oftentimes are passive. Listen is passive to us. Um, uh, to see is oftentimes a passive thing to us, not to them. To know is a passive thing to us, not to them. To, to say those things, to see, to, to hear, it meant that you were engaging, you were stepping into, you were entering into. So he's making very clear to Nicodemus, and this is important, you are not yet in. See, Nicodemus thought he was on the inside of the kingdom calling out to those outside the kingdom. And Jesus just told him, no, actually, Nicodemus, you aren't who you think you are. You are not where you thought you were. You do not have what you thought you had. You got to understand that's gracious, is it not? To, to reveal to someone, especially when it's going to cost them dearly, to come before him, as you heard in Matthew 7, if, you, if you've read that. Lord, Lord, look at all that we've done in your name. Depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus, in great grace, is trying to get Nicodemus to understand that he is not who he thinks he is. And he, too, needs redemption. And as he goes on within this passage, he, he uses some other things that would, would be helpful to him. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, meaning flesh cannot reproduce, it just can't. It cannot reproduce and create spirit. It's an impossibility. In fact, Paul takes the same position in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. He makes it very clear that only that which is born of the spirit can understand the spirit. Only that which is is transformed by the Spirit, can actually participate in the things of the Spirit. This is why we cannot save ourselves. The most we can kind of accomplish is more of the same. We know that to be true by and large. All throughout history since East of Eden, we keep repeating the same mistakes. There's really not a whole lot new under the sun. As we saw um, in Genesis 11, technology created an issue that could have been good for the kingdom of God, but it wasn't because they used it instead to try to, to, to just be on the plane of Shinar and have their own name made by themselves. 
We see the same thing in Silicon Valley as they are chasing uh, immortality um, as we speak. And as I read that quote to you from uh, the book uh, Natural Causes, what hubris. Because if you gain it, who knows what it will be like to be stuck in some computer somewhere and some 13-year-old changing your code to whatever he wants. And so he, he goes on, and, and, and when he does mention the water and the spirit, if Nicodemus would have thought about Ezekiel 36, he would have also had 37 in view, which is the valley of dry bones and resurrection. What Jesus is telling him is that you, you to be new again, you must be transformed all the way down, and you can't get there from where you are. You can only get there through me. And so, as he continues to unpack, he, he's taught this, this issue of the wind. I've, I've heard this verse misquoted quite a bit, and it usually, it was funny, it was usually by somebody who was, um, who liked to switch churches a whole bunch, right? They just kind of float from church to church, and, and they're, they're like, you know, the wind blows and doesn't know, and the spirit, and people's spirit. So I'm not making a commitment here, so just know that, but I'm being spiritual, I get it. I understand. God does move people around, by the way, and I'm not, I'm not being mean to folks who move around, but if you're constantly on the move and never putting your feet down and actually helping out a local body, how are you doing 1 Corinthians 12? I'll put a pin in that and move on. But what he is saying here is that you are dependent. You don't get to decide when the wind blows so that you can be saved at your leisure. Now, hear it in the same key that it's said in Hebrews. You better respond today to that which you're hearing because there's no guarantee you will hear it again tomorrow. Seek ye who you will serve this day is in essence what he's saying. He's saying it doesn't, it's not in your hands. Isaiah says, he says um, that, that seek the Lord while he may be found. Now that, we may, no, wait a minute now. I thought the free offer, it is a free offer. Because you don't bring anything to it. You, you get all of it and pay nothing except your surrender and you get eternal life. But what you don't get to do is choose when the Spirit moves in effectuality in your heart. If you think about it, that's an issue of humility. If the, if the creator of the universe were beckoning to you today to be redeemed and you can say, ah, maybe tomorrow. Tell me how you know tomorrow's coming. Well, because yesterday came. That's just not true. It doesn't work like this. This is where we, as God's people, ought to recognize that we do not have an eternity to blow. It's not ours to blow. It is a gift to us no matter how you slice it. You don't decide the number of your days in natural causes. You just don't. And so what he's saying is, Nicodemus, you need, to, you need to be humbled. You need to recognize that you cannot, you who think you are a teacher of the law, you who think you understand all these things, you don't. And it's going to be devastating to you. And it's the spirit who comes. You feel it. You know it's at work. But it blows where it decides in the sovereignty of God. So he's communicating to him something he would have also understood about the working of the Spirit from the Old Testament, for which wind and breath was often something that was used to signify the, the work of the Spirit that came and went as God sovereignly ordained. And then Nicodemus is starting to get to him. He's like, how, how can these things be? And Jesus in grace gives him more of the Old Testament. 
And he makes it clear to him that, hey, you ought to have taught these things. You, you ought to, of all people, be making these connections. And he delves into a couple of different passages. And he says, he says look, we, we've seen this, we've experienced this, and we've tried to share it with you, but you don't believe what you see. Now think about the, the passage in the Gospels, I think it's Matthew, where the, the Pharisees want a sign of uh, 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 more signs. Yeah, 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 you've raised the dead and you've run out, you know, you've turned water into wine and you've run people out of the temple and you've done a lot of really cool stuff. But how about one more thing to really convince us? And he says, you wicked generation of Jonah, no sign will be given to you because it's already been given. He, he is before them. How much more did they need to see? How much more do you need to see? How much more do we demand of the God of the universe to communicate his love to us? And who are we to demand such? But what he's saying is, look, you guys have seen and you don't want to know. In fact, this would call to his mind the book of Job. Remember in Job, there's all this pontificating going on about theodicy and human suffering. And God shows up and says, huh, you guys sound pretty smart. Let me, uh, let me get in on this conversation. I'm going to start at creation. Hey, y'all understand how the birds get fed after all? How the sun rises? Now, it's not because they were pre-scientific revolution that they were ignorant of these things. We can describe it scientifically, post-scientific revolution. We can describe it, but we have no earthly idea why. And so what he's saying to him, you can't even explain what you can see. It's like I was talking to somebody the other day. Somebody help me out. How, how do you fall in love? Well, first, you got to get in proximity. <laughs> and therein the steps end. <laughs> right? All right. So there's, there's all kinds of things that are utterly mysterious to us. Why, why in the world do children who've never eaten a certain thing in their lives suddenly, they just have this affinity for it? Like my son, when he was young, loved kippered herring. What? Is he from Norway? <laughs> Where does that come from? There's just things that are mysterious we can't fully explain, we'd love to, uh, we come up with answers, but sometimes we're just describing, we're not actually explaining, we're not giving the why. And in the same way, Job, Job realized that he had heard of God, but he'd never seen him, remember? After God explains to him, Job, this is utter mystery, but I am God and I love you and I will use uh, your, your obedience, I will redeem you. I've called you by name, you are mine. In the same way, Jesus is saying to him, look, you, you, what you can see, you can't explain. You don't seem to care too much about the evidence. I mean, this happens all the time. How I many of you have you, you've explained it to somebody as clear as you can make it, but clear that they just don't want to know because, it, because they'd already decided that's not the answer that they wanted. Didn't fit the paradigm. They already had confirmation bias all over the place. I rarely run into somebody that doesn't already have the answer figured out. Now, sometimes I can wrestle it from their grip if I fight hard enough. But even then, is that the best way? It's a lack of humility on our part. But he's saying to him, you've seen, you, there's things you've seen. And it's actually clear from those things, and you just don't want to know. 
And then he goes on to explain to him that it's not because the information's too hard to know. This, this bit where he says about who has ascended into heaven and descended and come back down. Well, only Christ has done that, but that actually should have called to mind um, Deuteronomy. Chapter 30, 11 through 14, where Moses is saying, listen, the law is, it's not that it's, it's too hard to keep. It's not that being obedient to God is too hard of a thing for, for any human to do. But you won't because you don't want to. Because your issue is rebellion. It's not that, it's n- not that we are born neutral, clean slates, and then we are burdened with something too hard to keep, and then Jesus has to come along and save us. We're not born neutral, by the way. We are born fallen, which is actually going to get into what's being talked about in, uh, at the end of uh, 16 through 21. We're born fallen, which we're, it's universal in that regard. And, and then we need a Savior, which is God's grace to enter into all this despite our love for the darkness and pursue us and to know us and yet still love us. And so what he's saying to him is, Nicodemus, now don't, don't get this twisted. While you, you don't understand, it's because you don't want to understand, and you can't get there by yourself. And then he tells him this, he includes, he's just like doing some sort of Old Testament mashup here. He throws in the story from Numbers 21, which is the story of the brazen serpent. And if you remember that story, Israel had gotten sideways, as they often did, and all these fiery snakes come to the camp and start killing people, which is a horrifying story, by the way. Kind of reminds me, like, if it made it into a movie, it'd kind of be like that Jason the Argonauts movie. That's kind of the, the, the speed at which I see that, or see that, right? And so how they're redeemed, though, is they take and put a brazen serpent on a pole and lift it up. Now, what you need to understand is how large of a pole would it be necessary for three million people to see in a circular fashion? It'd be a pretty large pole because God loves his people and he wanted to make sure they could see it. There's a lot that goes into that brazen serpent story that I, I preached on this a, 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 probably a year or two back when we were talking about grace in the Old Testament, so I won't re-preach that. But what you need to know is, what he's saying is, you cannot save yourself. You have been inflicted with something that's going to destroy you. And you can't get there from here except through me. Except through the grace of God alone. The power of the transforming power, regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. So unless you are born again, Nicodemus, you will die. You will perish. Notice the way he says, he he compares himself that the Son of Man will also be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And in Christ taking on the fullness of sin when he's lifted up, just like that brazen serpent, he is, he is becoming the poison that was killing us, right? Remember, Paul says it this way, he who, he who was without sin became sin so that we might become righteous. And so God is saying to Nicodemus, in this story-formed way, confess, bow, be redeemed. Be born again, so that you can truly enter into the very thing that you desire, which is the kingdom of God, to become an ambassador of reconciliation instead of a false prophet of the law. And so in great grace, he's calling Nicodemus to himself. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this passage. He says, to possess the privileges of Christ's kingdom, one must be born again of the Holy Ghost. The change which the Lord here declares needful to salvation is evidently no slight or superficial one. It is not merely reformation. 
or amendment or moral change or outward alteration of life. We would do well, I'm going to pause, we would do well to meditate and ask ourselves if our salvation is just merely those things. If we think that salvation is, it helps me just do better. It helps me, uh, you know, with, with all of my, my, my struggle, it helps me do better in terms of road rage. It helps me give to charities. It, it, it helps me be nicer to my children. All those things ought to be part of that, by the way. I'm not saying they shouldn't be. There ought to be evidence of your transformation, correct? But if you think that's the point instead of your total redemption so that you could dwell with God forever in the kingdom of God, like C.S. Lewis says, you're eating a mud pie while the entire banquet is behind you. He goes on to say, it is a thorough change of heart, will, and character. It is a resurrection. It is a new creation. It is passing from death to life. So the question that I have for you is, how much of you uh, has been affected by you being born again in Christ? How much of you? The theological answer is all. The evidential answer may be something short of all, which is why you weren't raptured immediately out of the world, right? And you continue to be sanctified, which is just a fancy term or a theological term for you are maturing in the power of the Holy Spirit so that You are growing in your knowledge of God's love for you so that when you get to heaven, you've got enough practice to appreciate what it is you're going to experience. See, I I don't know that we get that we're we're really practicing for heaven. That we are, we are in, in some, because the clock has stopped for us as eternal beings, right? I mean, as, as Christians, we're not, death is not our main fear anymore. Our main fear is not judgment, which is good news, isn't it? Our main fear is not whether or not we are loved. That question has been answered and amen. Our question is not one of identity, actually. We know who we are, but we live like we know what is true. And so, while we are changed all the way down in terms of we are righteous before the throne of God, there's still the living that out in time. As my mentor used to describe it, your whole life is, or your life as a Christian is discovering more about what you already are in Christ. Unfortunately, I don't know that that's the perspective that we have always. That we are able to celebrate the fullness of what it is that God has given us so that we can use the means of grace. We sound like defeated people and oftentimes celebrate as if that were a good thing. Are not a defeated people. Now, there's also triumphalism in the other ditch, right? That we are so victorious, I dare the devil to look straight at me in the eyes. <laughs> you don't want that either. <clears throat> You're not charging hell with a water pistol or any of that kind of nonsense. But we do have victory in Christ. We are more than conquerors, are we not? And how might we be encouraging to one another? Sometimes it takes a while, though, for all that victory to show up in various places. 
is one who's gone through a significant number of things with his own family, and <laughs> pick one. Some of it takes time. With our son, it took years. But we were able to continue knowing, not knowing exactly how it was going to work out, but remaining obedient to the means of grace and, at times when we failed, going right back to the throne of grace, not cheaply, not arrogantly, but in, in humility and repentance. What would it look like for us as a church, the Christ Community Church, to be a victorious people in humility? who were able to love one another and walk with each other through some very hard things. One of the perspectives that I have, um, and I've talked to a bunch of pastor friends of mine, you know, one of the things that pastors sometimes, you'll ask, hey, how are things going? Oh, it's tough, man. We got some tough stuff happening. We got, you know, marriages going bad, and we got, we got drug addiction, and we got, it's just, it's, it's bad. Wait, what? You do know that's just going on, by the way. Here, now, among us. I'm not calling anybody. Don't get scared. I'm not going to now read you the list of those who are currently in flux. We all find ourselves there at some point, by the way. All of us. And so what I've come to realize, no, that is sacred ground. In fact, it's a take on the parable of the talents, if you will. It's essentially God saying, all right, I've got some redemptive work that needs doing. Who can I trust this with? This is delicate work. I need somebody to be an ambassador of my reconciliation." Not clean this up. Like a lot of times, don't, don't we have the sense sometimes that church just wants to clean it up to get it out of view because it's just chewing up all the resources? No. No, we are people of the Spirit. We are born again. We are victorious in Christ and we can walk with each other in the hardest of things. There's nothing you can tell me that I probably haven't heard and or done that I haven't been redeemed from or seen redeemed. So why wouldn't we be a people who would confess to each other because we have been redeemed all the way down? There's nothing to fear. The question is, how do I, given the mistakes that I have made or someone else has made or, or that's needed, how can I walk in that? And guess what? You don't come prepackaged with that knowledge. And when you get redeemed, it's not automatically downloaded in full to your head. You're going to need some help. And we want to be a people who walk in that and who trust that as sacred ground, not as a, a space that is, that is unworthy. And, and think about it, that's what he's trying to get Nicodemus to understand. Nicodemus, you aren't, you aren't okay. You are broken. You are fallen. You will die. And then what are some of the ways in which you are participating in the kingdom of God as a result of being born again in the Holy Spirit, in Christ? And let me say this. I'm going to say this again. Every single um, confessing Christian in this room has a spiritual gift of some kind. Every one of you. And just sarcasm ain't one of them. I have it. It's not a gift always. All right, so... so if you have a gift, then what does that mean? Are you using it? Because it is to be used for the glory of God. And it is to be used to, to better the community of that he's called together. So it's to be used in the context of the body of Christ. Now, 
Does that mean you can only do stuff at church? Or do we have a more robust view of the kingdom? Some of this you're doing out in the world. Whether it's vocation, your neighbors, um, whether it's, uh, um, as um, Sonia and him did, uh, Bill's part of this, going and serving at Aspen Village, right? If their hips could have taken it, I think revival would have broke out, but they couldn't. And so there's a women's extension, men's extension, all of these places. It doesn't have to be that you serve. Like, it's not automatic that you have a gift for the nursery or children or threes and fours like Robbie does or other people. Not everybody has that gift. You just don't have it. Okay, it's okay. Not all of you can sing. Not all of you can keep time. Not all of you can preach or teach. But what we can all do is love our neighbor and use the gifts that we have to do that uh, in the various spheres of influence that we have, we are without excuse. So if you can't think of a way in which you are participating in the kingdom of God, that is a wonderful blessing that you now know that. Because that, that is a dangerous place to be because essentially you are putting your light under a bushel or hiding your talent. And you can't, I, I'm, I just want you to know, I'm not trying, we're not having a volunteer fair after this, by the way. Uh, so I'm not setting you up for something, but I am, I am serious. I, the more I go, the, the, the more that I see that the, the lack of participation in the things of the kingdom of God may be the most devastating thing we have. More so than marriages coming apart, more so than struggling with addiction and other things, which there may be a correlation there. So you need to answer that question. And it's not that we need to be amazing and people need to notice you. Notice what he's saying to Nicodemus. It's not about who you are, Nicodemus. It's about who I am. All right, let's turn back to the text and see how John, uh, the apostle, gives us an explication of this conversation with Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So what John is saying there is, listen, what Jesus is trying to communicate to Nicodemus is, God loves you, first and foremost. Because it could sound like that was a harsh conversation, like Jesus was tuning him up a little bit. And he was, but he was doing it in love, by the way. It is not loving to let someone continue in ignorance. It's just not. And so what he's saying is that God so loved the world, and that, that would be important for Nicodemus to understand because that means that it's bigger than just Israel. That the Abrahamic covenant was that all nations would be blessed. As we sang, that every tongue would confess, every knee would bow. You may say, is this universalism? No, but what it's saying is, is that God... And this is, this is paradox and this is tension for us when it comes to the issue of predestination. Uh-oh. Because this makes us really, like, wait a minute. Is he saying anybody can choose? Didn't he just say to Nicodemus, you, you can't choose of your own will? You just can't. Both tend to, I mean, you can't choose of your own will. 
And there are ways in which you are cultivating the darkness such that you won't see. And that is dangerous and you need to recognize it. So there's a tension here. There's a measure of responsibility on our part that I don't completely understand. But what I am thankful of is that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that we might have eternal life. And he didn't send him to condemn, by the way. It's not like we were fine until Jesus showed up. Right? That could be sometimes... So John's trying to make clear to Nicodemus, this ain't new, by the way. This story didn't start when Jesus showed up. It's been going on. And that your condemnation precedes his, his advent, which means you've been perishing. Now, wait a minute. Does that mean they weren't saved in the Old Testament? Yes, they were by the same measure that we are, but through a glass darker than what we're looking through. Romans 4. They had faith too, by the way. But faith in that this was what was coming, which is why Jesus uses all that Old Testament stuff to get Nicodemus to see, this is a story you should have known. And so what John the Apostle is trying to make very clear is that, that, listen, you cannot save yourself. It is only by God's love for you. And I got to admit to you, that doesn't always turn the crank for me either. I see some of you yawn. And that's actually a perfect response, isn't it, in our humanity? God loves me. <laughs> what time's lunch? Got a baptism. <sighs> Should have brought snacks. <clears throat> but that's us left to our own devices, is it not? And you may say, well, maybe if you'd make it more exciting. Me make God's love more exciting? How am I supposed to do that? You wicked generation of Jonah, no further signs going to be given to you either. Myself included. And so he, he goes on to say um, very clearly that those, those who are condemned are condemned already by virtue of uh, the doctrine of original sin. And oh, by the way, we cultivate the teetotal mess out of some darkness. We love it. We just do. The more stuff we can hide and get away with, the better it is. Think about for those of you, and don't raise your hand, who drank before it was legal. It tasted a whole lot better, i got to be honest with you. And now that I can do it and I'm really having to pay for it, right? The cheap stuff just don't do it anymore. I have to, I'm continuing to have to search for more if I'm not, a, if I'm not careful because that's not what satisfies. And so often, even this is, we've, we've had some premarital counseling and talked about this as well, that, that the things that we, we, we gain without covenant, it's amazing. But it ruins covenant side stuff. And, and, and it robs you of something that you can't get back, now doesn't it? You don't now know what you could have known. I'm not throwing stones at you because my hands ain't clean either. But what I am telling you is this. God loves us. Our condemnation was already in play. The fact that he shows up and sends a way for us to be redeemed is just grace. Amen? That he would know us. That was Old Testament we read, by the way, that song. He sent Jesus knowing fully what we are. That is just mind-blowing. Fully, how we would reject, how we would spit and kick and scream and hide and lie, all the stuff that we do, and yet he came for us. But there is a warning. There is a warning. That if you continue cultivating the darkness, you will perish in it. 
it will have its own reward. It'll be great for a time, but it ain't eternal. And let's just, let's just admit in humility, none of us gets to decide what eternity is going to be. Either we're being told and it's good for those of us who are in Christ. But either way, we don't control it. I don't care what Silicon Valley's trying to do. And so we in humility ought to step into the love of God and serve as ambassadors who share that with those in our spheres of influence and patience and kindness, being willing to communicate it in ways that they can understand, being patient with their struggles as Jesus actually is here with Nicodemus, being willing to take the time to further explain and even John being gracious to those he's writing this gospel for to say, now, I know that story was probably a little interesting, but let me make sure y'all know what's being said here. Listen to what John Calvin says about this. He says, Christ opens up the first cause and as it were, the source of our salvation. And he does so that no doubt may remain for our minds cannot find calm repose until we arrive at the unmerited love of God. Did you hear that? John Calvin just said, unmerited love of God. He's a lot nicer than he's been given historical credit for, by the way. As the whole matter of our salvation must not be sought anywhere else than in Christ, so we must see whence Christ came to us and why he was offered to be our Savior. Both points are distinctly stated to us, namely, that faith in Christ brings life to all, and that Christ brought life because the Heavenly Father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish. And this order ought to be carefully observed, for such is the wicked ambition which belongs to our nature, that when the question relates to the origin of our salvation, we quickly form diabolical imaginations about our own merits. Accordingly, we imagine that God is reconciled to us because he has reckoned us worthy that he should look upon us. But scripture everywhere extols his pure and unmingled mercy, which sets aside all merits. If God sends his son and, oh, by the way, the spirit into the world to reveal his redemptive love, if that was their purpose, and if the spirit and the son and God all dwell in you, then what are we being sent into the world to do as those born again of the Holy Spirit in Christ? Did you follow what I just said? If Christ's purpose is to, is to come to reveal the glory of God, which we read, previously. And if the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make sure that we understand the fullness of who Christ is so that we might be redeemed, and if all three of those folks live somewhere innocent, I don't know where there's room, but there just is, then what is it we're supposed to be? We're supposed to hide all that glory? We're supposed to share it some kind of way. Now again, in a room full of 80% introverts, I know that what you just heard was terrifying. And I get it. I, every time, you know, so much of evangelism is geared toward extroverts. But I'm here to tell you that my wife, who is mighty among you in her introversion, is, is, has shared the gospel as much, if not more, than I have with the testimony of her life. 
she has been more bold with our children than I may ever have the right to be because of how she's conducted herself and lived her life. Our neighbors, everybody who comes to our house knows of her gift of hospitality and it's just straight heavenly. They're all hoping she'll be a cook in heaven. A friend of mine wanted, he said, listen, I'm putting together a missionary team and Susan's on it. And I guess that means you are too. Because I need a cook. <laughs> it's not just that. I'm just saying she uses her gifts and it's not a bunch of verbiage. It's not, y'all know her. She ain't trying to get wily and live and do all this kind of stuff. That's me. And sometimes that's a hindrance, by the way. Whereas hers, I feel like sometimes is more unhindered. So those of you who are introverts, you, you've, got, you've got some really good runway. Are you using the gifts that you've been given in order to share? And you ain't gotta, it doesn't have to be a crazy amount of people. Remember, all of heaven breaks out in a party when one lost sheep comes home. And we don't need to notch anything for that. And so... How are you reflecting the glory that you've been given? So what do we learn from John 3, 1 through 21? Well, it teaches us that we are to be born again of the Holy Spirit in Christ to participate in the kingdom of God. Part of you knowing you've been born again is that you participate in the kingdom of God in some way. If you have a question about that, let's talk about it. And there are different seasons in our lives where this is harder than others. Where you're just doing reconciliatory work in your own marriage or with your kids or something else. That is work in the kingdom, by the way. Fighting for the covenant. And that we're also to share God's redemptive love for the world as those filled by the Holy Spirit. You do recognize that's just the same statement restated twice. I just said the same thing twice. And so as we approach this baptism, and Wes is going to come up and do the homily and have the joy of baptizing his daughter, I want to pray for us and pray for you. And if, if you're struggling, like I said, if you feel like, man, what, I don't know what my gifts are. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Let's talk. That's what we're here for. We want to equip and disciple and help you in that. There's various avenues by which we can do that. Don't let this weigh you down. And maybe you feel like you've got too much going on in your life to be able to do it. That's just not true. It may be that you can't do the super amazing thing you'd like to do because you've got to get some other things squared away first. But here's where we can also be a help to you as well in terms of making a wise decision on what's best next. So let me pray for us, and you consider that, and then Wes will come and have the joy of baptizing Anne McLean Louise Calton. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do love us, that you don't want us to perish. And then even though we do love the darkness, you love us. And that's greater than the darkness. And you are so gracious to pierce that darkness. And to even as that psalm goes further on to say that we read for the call to worship, that you, you dwell with us in that darkness and it is like the noonday to you. So I, I can't get my head around that, why you'd love us that much. And that's what makes it so beautiful and wonderful is I can't, I can't limit it. I can't simplified. I can't boil it down. It's too big for that. May we be a people who serve you as ambassadors of reconciliation, who recognize we are in the kingdom of God by virtue of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in Christ alone, by faith alone, through your grace alone. And would you help us to see right where we are, each of us here, 
how we might grow from where we are in your glory. That's going to look different for each one of us. And may we be able to celebrate that as a church. And may we grieve where it's difficult. May we give help where needed. May we lift up and encourage and edify. And would you, Lord, trust us with fruit? Would you trust us with opportunities? Would you continue to entrust difficult things to us because we're willing to step into the valleys and the shadows and the darkness as you have done and have already gone before us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.